It's Sunday, June 30th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. On the show this week, the Trans Mountain Pipeline has the green light to put shovels in the ground, but opponents are vowing to fight on and block TMX from going forward. How is Trans Mountain going to navigate the challenges ahead? We'll ask its CEO and President Ian Anderson. Plus, Ukraine. Canada is hosting Ukrainian leaders this week to talk about democratic reform and Russian aggression. What does Ukraine want from Canada? That country's ambassador is here. And then it's Hill Hobbies, another in our occasional series, and a glimpse into what MPs get into when they're not on Parliament Hill. This week, Highland Dancing with Science and Sports Minister Kirsty Duncan. Protests, that's what many are expecting out west as pipeline opponents try and block the Trans Mountain expansion. Well, some First Nations communities along the pipeline want to buy into the project. Others are planning to battle construction in the courts as the B.C. government is doing so too. Ottawa has not committed to when shovels will be in the ground, but cabinet ministers are hinting they expect it to be later this year. What's the likelihood of that actually happening and how is Trans Mountain planning to proceed in the face of so much opposition? Joining me now from Calgary is Trans Mountain President and CEO Ian Anderson. Welcome to the show, Mr. Anderson. Well, thanks for having me. Obviously, big news for you moving forward with this project. A lot of moving parts. Some of the first ones are the most basic ones, getting those permits to be able to build. Where are you at in terms of getting the permits that you need to start putting shovels in the ground? Yeah, the, the first step will be to re-engage with the National Energy Board. Uh, they came out with a, a process letter uh, this past week that will really lay out the next steps we need to undertake to, to in effect, uh, get us back to where we were last August and bring forward all the decisions that the National Energy Board had made up to that point in time. That will give us uh, the clearance through them to get started. Uh, and that'll have us, you know, ready to commence work in the same places that we were working last August. Uh, then we're going to have some other steps to take with the provinces, uh, Alberta and British Columbia, finalizing other permits for other sections of the work uh, that were in process last year and, and have continued really throughout this period of, uh, of, uh, of delay. And we're, we're ready to recommence that process uh, uh, within weeks. How long do you expect it will take to get those initial permits approved so you can actually start the construction again? Yeah, the process right now isn't specific to time frame. If we look at what the NEB has laid out, my judgment is it should take uh, some weeks, uh, perhaps four to six weeks, to get to that point in time where we can start uh, back working in the field. So optimistically, I would say early September uh, could slide to middle of September. Uh, but again, we don't know exactly what the process is going to entail. We don't know what other points of view are that will be brought into consideration. But uh, I'm planning for a September restart of construction activity. In terms of overall cost, we were looking at about $7.4 billion, I believe, to build that pipeline. You'd mentioned that you expect there to be cost overruns. How much more do you think the pipeline is going to cost at this point? 
Yeah, we don't. Uh, we haven't landed on that finally. We've run some various scenarios, obviously, uh, and, and I wouldn't refer to them as overruns at this point. Uh, the 7.4 was a number that was developed back at the late 2016, early 17. So it's it's about two and a half years old. Uh, lots has happened in the marketplace since then. Obviously, we've had you know inflationary effects, but also. Uh, delay costs money. We've been undertaking work and spending money for the last two years on various engineering and permitting and legal and regulatory aspects. So uh, it will cost more than 7.4. Uh, once we have a firm idea of the schedule that will flow from the conclusion of this National Energy Board process, we'll be in a better position to talk more openly and publicly about what we think the current estimate is going to be. Are any of the court challenges that are currently in process or ones you expect could be launched things that could impact the construction schedule for the pipeline and delay it further? Yeah, the, the only court action that's currently outstanding is one where BC is is uh, challenging their reference case that they filed between, with the BC courts uh, about a year ago, and they're taking that to Supreme Court, and and we'll see where that goes. Uh, I don't I don't think it'll have uh, any direct effect on construction or us getting started or, or proceeding through the course of construction. Uh, parties have, uh, you know, time frames by which to file judicial reviews on, on the approvals that we now have in hand. Uh, that time will come sometime in July. We'll get a sense there of who's going to continue to try and legally challenge the project. And from there, you know, we'll be able to gauge uh, just how significant a, a threat or a risk that is. I don't see anything right now that is going to inhibit our commencement of construction or construction through, you know, the, the coming weeks and months. Speaking of threats and obstacles, there's been a lot of discussion of protests, of potential civil disobedience, even some groups calling for an attack on the pipeline's infrastructure. What are you doing to deal with those potential challenges and threats both to your infrastructure and to your workers? Yeah, well, that's my highest priority. My highest priority is the safety of the communities and the workers uh, and the infrastructure that's in place to make sure the environment isn't harmed. We have, uh, we have uh, very solid, comprehensive security plans and programs in place. Um, we've been, you know, aware of the activity that's been, uh, uh, that you refer to. Uh, we'll be prepared to protect our facilities. Uh, we'll be prepared to ensure the workers are kept safe. Um, we're really focused now uh, on, on getting back to work, creating some momentum behind that work, creating some positive, uh, you know, um, returns for, for, you know, the workers that are, that are going to be building this. And uh, we're not spending uh, a ton of time thinking about uh, uh, protest activities. People have the right to, to express their views publicly, and we expect them to. Uh, our job is to make sure things are safe, and we've got plans in place to ensure that's the case. We had BC Green leader Andrew Weaver on the show last week. Uh, he said that he does not believe there is a demand for the kind of oil that we put through Trans Mountain, that only one tanker has left for China this year. How do you respond to those allegations that by the time the pipeline is built, there simply won't be a market for the product that's in it? 
Well, I think the best judge of that are our shippers and our producers who have committed to support this expansion for the next 20 years. So they've committed long-term contracts to move their product to market. We know that the market is going to fluctuate day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. Uh, that's that's natural market dynamics that are going to pull those barrels in different directions at different points of time. Uh, we know that, uh, that Southeast Asia is well-suited for Canadian heavy oil. Uh, we know that our shippers are developing those markets and have been over, over some time, but until they have the capacity to tide water, they can't truly develop those markets to their full ex- fullest extent. Um, so our shippers believe in this asset, they believe in this project, they've committed for 20 years to this project, and I think that's the best gauge of its economic viability, that you've got sophisticated companies uh, believing that uh, this project is something that's necessary for, uh, for their future uh, production, and uh, I think that's the truest test. Mr. Anderson, one of the concerns that I've heard raised is that in Twinning Trans Mountain, you're building a new pipeline next to an old pipeline, and there could be a risk that during the construction there's damage to that old pipeline and some kind of environmental consequence. How are you dealing with that issue? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. And in our uh, asset protection or damage prevention program that the project is going to be required to uh, administer and adhere to is extensive. If, if I can use by example, the first phases project really was built in 2007 and 8 through Jasper National Park. Uh, a very successful project on time, on budget, and uh, we had literally uh, field markers every 10 meters over the existing pipeline as they were constructing the new pipeline in the in the same right-of-way and corridor. So we will have monitors on the ground, we will have inspectors on the ground, and the existing line will be marked. Uh, at every place where there's going to be any ground disturbance, there will be mats put over the existing pipeline so that there's no surface disruption there. So it's a very, very extensive program, and, and a program that is absolutely fundamentally necessary because we're going to be working beside a live asset and with oil moving through it. So it's, uh, it's an important part of our, our work and we're going to have extensive monitors and inspectors in the field at all times to ensure the existing facility is safe. Would it have been less dangerous to simply build a new, more modern pipeline and not take the risk of twinning an older one? Well, the new pipeline will be new and modern to the highest technology that's available. Um, and uh, in fact, we're we're going to be installing advanced leak detection along the new system, state-of-the-art leak detection that will benefit the existing pipeline as well. So that existing pipeline, while it's been there for 60 years, is in pristine condition. We, we test and we run tools through that line uh, on a very regular basis, multiple times a year. Uh, informing us on the, on, on the condition of the line. Uh, so I've got no hesitation whatsoever to stand behind the, the integrity of the existing pipeline. And ultimately, we're going to be having two pipelines in place. The new pipeline is where the heavier commodities are going to be transported. And uh, the existing line is where the lighter gasoline, diesels, and light oils are going to be transported. So it's going to be a, a very unique system, but one that's going to be entirely safe and sustainable. When do you expect that oil will actually flow through the pipeline and how much are you estimating will be coming through per day? Well, we're going to go from a capacity of 300,000 barrels a day up to 890,000 barrels a day when complete. 
Uh, and if our schedule holds, uh, we expect to be in service by mid-22. Uh, we have about a 30-month construction period uh, to build uh, the new pipeline. So mid-22 is when we would be expecting first oil to be on the new line. How much of a difference do you expect this pipeline will make for the industry in Alberta? Because they've said one of the big struggles is trying to get product to market. Is it enough yeah. to help to revive the industry or would there have to be many more pipelines? Well, I mean, they're going to know best, and I'm not going to pretend to know their business or their economics in detail, and they're all different. But what we can say is that going from a very modest, you know, 50 or 75,000 barrels a day of capacity to tide water to around 600,000 barrels a day will be a significant um, uh, access point for global markets. Today, we know the Canadian barrel is discounted in, at, at varying amounts, $14, $15 currently, and we expect that this project will really help shrink that differential so the producers can get a world price for their oil, uh, have the ability then to reinvest that into you know, both production growth as well as technology investment to meet our, our national climate change objectives. So I think that the project itself will be a meaningful step forward for Canadian producers to get world prices and, and then to be able to use those world prices to invest further. Have you engaged at all with any potential Indigenous owners on the pipeline? I know there's a number of groups who are interested in investing. Is that something that would be along your role or would that be something that would be along the government's role? Well, uh, I've met with many. Uh, I know who all the interested parties are. In fact, I would say every community that we touch is interested in one way, shape, or form to economically participating in, in this pipeline. Uh, the minister as well has reached out to all affected Indigenous communities, and I think it'll be a, a bit of a collaborative effort between the uh, Department of Finance uh, and ourselves uh, to run a process over the coming you know, months to determine just who and how uh, that uh, that transaction might occur. I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, I've always held the belief that Indigenous ownership in this asset is a worthwhile thing, that it can be an important uh, aspect of, of many nations' economic development and prosperity. So uh, I'll be working with the federal government. Uh, we know the counterparties. Ultimately, they're the shareholder. They'll make the decision. Uh, and uh, I'll provide my advice along the way. Are any of the changes to the pipeline's route that are a result of the consultation with Indigenous communities expected to make it significantly more difficult or more expensive for the pipeline to be built? No, I don't think so. Uh, there's a couple places where we're looking at route carefully where Indigenous communities are affected. Uh, I'm optimistic that we'll find the right route. We've got an approved route today. Uh, a couple of communities are questioning whether or not some deviation can occur to that route in order to protect and preserve some of their interests. And I'm, I'm well prepared to look into that with them. And in fact, we are. So, But I don't see them having a material effect on cost or schedule. Uh, it may cost a little bit more, but not anything uh, dramatic or that would affect overall project economics. What is your message to Indigenous communities who feel the pipeline is being rammed through despite their opposition? Well, uh, 
we have to, I think, uh, look hard at where opposition is and where it isn't. I've got um, well north of 40 communities who can't wait for the pipeline project to bring opportunities to their communities, uh, jobs, uh, training, uh, contracts, uh, uh, and, uh, and the like. And uh, certainly some are opposed, but, you know, uh, there are, there are non-Indigenous people who are opposed too. Uh, nothing's unanimous in our society, we know that, we've dealt with that from day one. Our job, I think, is to listen, learn, understand as best we can what the issues are, uh, what the concerns are, do our absolute best to try and mitigate and, um, uh, and, and account for those issues and concerns and build something that's as close to everybody's satisfaction as we possibly can, knowing that nothing's unanimous. Mr. Anderson, thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much. Ukrainian leaders, foreign ministers and parliamentarians from around the world will meet in Toronto this week to discuss democratic reform in Ukraine and how to deal with increased Russian aggression. Just over two months ago, Ukrainians elected a political novice as president who vowed to reboot peace talks with his Russian counterparts. Those tensions in Crimea continue as the country heads into parliamentary elections next month. What does Ukraine want from Canada when it comes to reform and dealing with Russia? Joining me now is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Andrei Shevchenko. Thank you so much for joining us, Ambassador. Thanks for having me, Mercedes. A busy week ahead with the planned conference here in Canada about Ukraine. Can you give us an update on what the situation is on the ground right now in Crimea, in Russia, with Ukraine? Well, uh, Ukraine is a country which now uh, fights two major battles. First is the battle to preserve its uh, independence and sovereignty. And second, it's our struggle to modernize our country. And uh, we have to handle those both priorities, and we are very lucky to have Canada as our major supporter in both those battles. To what degree do you still see actual conflict and combat on the ground? It has never, be it has never become a frozen uh, conflict. It means that every day, even as we speak, we keep losing our people, both military and civilians. It means that uh, more than 10,000 of Ukrainians were killed in this war. And it means that uh, this war will not st stop until we see very strong and consolidated uh, position, solidarity of, uh, of democracies. Have you seen any progress in terms of getting Crimea back? Well, I think we can see the West strong and uh, consolidated. And uh, I think this is, our, uh, this is the best sign that uh, uh, we will be able to solve the situation in the future. But again, our, our quickest, quickest priority is to make sure that the fighting uh, uh, is stopped and the ceasefire is uh, reinforced. That is not in sight. What's the most effective way to do that? Um, it's solidarity of Western democracies. I think Russia understands that the only way for it to succeed is to make sure that, uh, that uh, the West is not united and they want to play uh, with differences. Canada has just renewed their mission in recent months to Ukraine. It's a military mission. What kind of a difference is that making in terms of Ukraine's ability to defend itself? Tremendous. First, obviously, it's a very uh, demonstrative gesture of support, but also it's a very practical support. It means that less Ukrainian men and women in, in uniforms die in the east of the country. It also means, Mercedes, a lot of experience for the Canadian army because it's a two-way uh, street. I had the privilege to accompany Prime Minister Trudeau during his visit to Ukraine, and uh, I was very excited to hear 
the stories of Canadian soldiers and officers, what they had learned from, from the Ukrainians. We have this very very, price, very pricey and very important experience of fighting the Russian army. We want to share it, it with our friends. Now, Canada had been asked by Ukraine to send weapons, had agreed to send non-lethal military equipment like boots, uniforms, sleeping bags. Are military weapons something you would still like to see the Canadian government deliver? Well, first of all, I think it's very important that the Canadian government has included Ukraine into the automatic firearms country control list, and that's something which allows us to go into direct negotiations with Canadian businesses, and it's something that uh, helps us to build the Ukrainian army stronger. And I think we'll see a lot of this cooperation in the future. Unfortunately, in our part of the world, we'll require a lot of weapons and a lot of uh, other uh, things, tools, to make sure that we can defend ourselves and our partners can do as well. What is the perspective in Ukraine on Russia right now? Because obviously there has been aggression. There's been a pushback by Western countries. Do you think that they're chastened? Do you think that they are staying out of other countries? Or do you think that Russian aggression is still at the same level it was before? I think it, Russia today under Putin is an, is an outdated uh, empire. It's a very suicidal attempt to uh, to uh, recreate an empire in the 21st century, I strongly believe this will lead into nowhere. I am absolutely sure that together with our Western friends, we will be able to restore international law. And it means that we'll be, we'll be able to uphold the Ukrainian territorial integrity and sovereignty. But again, it's not going to come from the blue. It's not going to happen by itself. We need to work on it together. When you talk about working together, I think of the conference that's happening this week. What are you looking for to come out of this conference in Canada? It's a huge event for Ukraine, and it's, I believe it's a big event for Canada. So what we're talking about is this annual conference of uh, more than 30 countries which come together and coordinate their effort to support Ukraine. Uh, Canada is picking up this torch from the UK and uh, Denmark, which used to host this conference before. And uh, it means that we can actually coordinate better how we can modernize Ukraine and how make sure that Ukraine can contribute into a better world. The way Canada supports Ukraine and does it, its technical support to Ukraine is efficient, smart, value-based, and I think it's very important uh, to coordinate with our other partners. You have a new president and you have parliamentary elections coming up. One of the big concerns has been democratic accountability, reform and corruption. What's being done to address those issues? Well, I think one of the biggest responses to that is the recent presidential election, which uh, was uh, done in a, in a very transparent and democratic way. And now we're witnessing a very peaceful and smooth transition of power. It's something which most of, of Canadians take for granted. But it's not something that we take for granted in our part, uh, part of, the, of the world. We were also very happy to see the Canadian election observation mission at the parliamentary election. I think it was a very smart uh, move to, to do so, because that helps Canada to learn also how we fight foreign interference into the election. Something we're expecting in the coming election. What advice do you have for the Canadian government having dealt with this firsthand? Well, you need to be proactive. And uh, you do not have to wait when this major interference come, comes into your backyard. Uh, we saw several major avenues of uh, foreign interference into the elections. 
that uh, we are talking about digital election infrastructure, we are talking about media environment and also political finances, I think there is a chance we might see a little piece of everything uh, in Canada and in other Western democracies. So uh, that's why we feel it's very important for us to share our experience, how we fight this interference with the Canadians. Ambassador, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mercedes. This week, we bring you another in our occasional series we call Hill Hobbies. What do MPs like to do when they're not here on Parliament Hill? Well, this week, I learned how to Highland dance with the help of the Bytown Highland Dancers and Science and Sports Minister Kirsty Duncan. Minister. Thank you so much for doing this and for loving Highland. Well, we're very excited to learn the moves. I have to tell you, I've, I've never done this. So I'm going to show you the first step of the Highland Fling. It's what we would teach, uh, you know, I get them as young as three. That's about my level right now. <laughs> so point behind, point behind, front, and hop behind. Hop behind? Point behind. <laughs> behind. That was great. That is the that is the basic movement for the first step of the Highland Slam. Minister, you danced for a long time. You were very, very good at it. Tell me about your connection to Highland dancing and what has it meant in your life? Highland dancing was literally my whole life. Um, my mother's a neat lady. She's Polish, Ukrainian, fell in love with bagpipes when she was five and learned to play them. And my birth announcement, what they put in the paper was sound the pipes. Mom went back to playing a week after I was born, started ballet when I was three, Highland when I was four, and competed lots and got my teachers when I was 16 and I've been teaching since I was 16. One of the highlights was I danced for the 48th Highlanders, one of our Scottish regiments for 25 years, in fact, until I came to Parliament. How competitive were you as a Highland dancer? <laughs> I love to compete. Highland, sport, uh, I was Politics. a gymnast. <laughs> I love to compete. <laughs> What lessons do you think you learned in Highland dancing that apply now for your life in politics and as a minister? Practice, practice, practice. Uh, determination, how to dig deep on the hard days. Uh, Highland dancing is like sport. It teaches life. It teaches you to set goals and to achieve them. It teaches you there are challenges. I call them speed bumps. You've got to find a way over them or around them. And it teaches you impossible is a dare and to dream your greatest dreams. You are the minister of both science and sport. How difficult is it for you to juggle two totally different portfolios. There's not a lot of ministers who have two full-time portfolios. Um, as I said, I'm a scientist. I love serving the research community. My goal was to return science and research to their rightful place, to put our researchers and students at the center of everything we do, um, because they make the discoveries and the innovations that make 
Canada a better place. And on the sports side, I've been an athlete, coach, and judge all my life. And when I came into this role, everyone said, what are you going to do? And week one on the job, I said, we're going to protect our children and we're going to protect our athletes. And we've spent the past year making sports safer. And that's something I want to talk to you about because it wasn't in your mandate letter. But you obviously know a lot about sport from having been there. And when we look at things like sexual abuse in sport or concussions, there's a lot of very serious issues in what I think a lot of people might assume is just a fun portfolio. How much of your time do you dedicate to that and what kind of a difference do you want to make on those files? We know what happens in sport. So the changes we've brought in, uh, last June I announced tough new measures for our national sport organizations and if they don't put them in place we'll withhold funding. Then in February we signed the Red Deer Declaration. For the first time in Canadian history all ministers have made a commitment to ending abuse in sport. I've put in place a confidential toll-free helpline so any athlete that's in difficulty can phone and find out where to go next, whether it's to the police or child protection services. And I've been clear that that's for witnesses too. Everyone has a duty to care. If you see something, if you see abuse, discrimination, harassment, maltreatment, report it. On concussions, it's been a topic of increasing research and of concern for children and adults. Some professional sports associations still seem to be resisting accepting an association between their sport, uh, physical contact, physical fights in it, and the effects of concussion on the brain. Do you think that those organizations are doing enough to protect athletes against the, the potential risk? This is the most important organ, organ in the body. If it doesn't work properly, you can't think, you can't talk, you can't walk, potentially. It matters. You can't write poetry. We have to keep that brain healthy, and particularly in young people who are developing. So what we've done is we've put in place new concussion guidelines, and we've worked with the Minister of Health to do that, and those are now being adopted, the guidelines, by our national sport organizations. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure, and I loved being able to watch you dance. <laughs> <laughs> That's it! That's it! Well done. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please check us out online at thewestblock.ca. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.